player one, welcome to the Gaming History Club. My name is Gabby. Hello, and I'm JP. In today's episode, we visit the gritty history of violence in gaming. So player one, before we start this episode, let me just give you a quick trigger warning. Of course, our podcast is clean. We don't use any naughty words. We don't use any curse words. But because we're talking about violence in gaming, naturally, we might be using some words related to violence. And so, yeah, that's just a quick shout out. Perhaps if you have any young people listening to you, maybe skip this episode. But we promise it's going to be as clean as possible. As clean as reasonable. Yes, that's true. We're not going to talk about anything too graphic in that sense, anyway. No, we're not going to go into detail about things, no. That's true. that's true. Right, so speaking about violence, what is violence? So, according to the Encyclopedia of World Problems and Human Potential, violence is defined as the use of physical force to cause harm to people, animals, or property, such as pain, Injury, death, damage, or destruction. So, by definition, many games feature at least a small amount of violence. Yeah, according to this definition, we think of violence to be very violent in Mm -hmm. a way, right? But it can be rather smaller things too, which don't cause a lot of damage or injury, but still do in some sense. So, even Mario jumping on a Koopa or Goomba, is Mm -hmm. technically violence, so. Yeah, if we're seeing it that way, I think it makes sense that according to the American Psychology Association, there are more than 85% of games that contain some sort of violence. Yeah, I think before we understand how violence is defined, then hearing a figure like that 85%, it sounds a little bit made up, Mm -hmm. like it, it, it wants to be worse. Then it really is. Like yeah. it's trying hard to sound really shocking. But but now if we look at the definition of violence, I think 85%, that's very appropriate. And the other 15%, I imagine casual games, puzzles, yeah, that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, mm. that makes sense. So to get a better understanding of the different levels of violence, um, we can briefly have a look at the video game content ratings and how they define violence. There are two organizations that merged and uniform ratings internationally. The first one is ESRB by US and Canada. Um, ESRB stands for Entertainment Software Rating Board. And in Europe, we have PEGI, Pan-European Game Information. So countries outside of the ESRB or PEGI umbrella have their own national content rating system. For countries that aren't represented by or don't have any rating authority, the International Age Rating Coalition, or IARC, can be used. They're basically an initiative introduced in 2013 and created by a coalition of the ESRB, PEGI, USK from Germany, Klassint in Brazil, and also Australian Classification Board. So as I mentioned before, let's have a look at how these rating boards define violence. A game rated E or for everyone, by the ESRB, means content is generally suitable for all ages. 
may contain minimal cartoon, fantasy, or mild violence, and are in frequent use of mild language. So that's E, stands for everyone. Whereas game rated as AO, or adults only, according to ESRB, it means may include prolonged scenes of intense violence, graphic sexual content, and or gambling. On the other hand, PEGI, the European Rating System for Video Games, classes its PEGI 18 rated games as when the level of violence reaches a stage where it becomes a depiction of gross violence, apparently motiveless killing, violence towards defenseless characters, the glamorization of the use of illegal drugs and of the simulation of gambling and explicit sexual activity. Yeah, so I think it's interesting that in the ESRB rating E, it already says that, you know, content is generally suitable for all ages, may contain minimal or mild violence. So they already said right there, just because it has a little bit of violence, it doesn't mean it's automatically not suitable for everyone. Um, yeah. I also really like Peggy's definition for the 18 rated games because it goes a little bit more in depth. Uh, I think, then the ESRB does where it says the level of violence reaches a stage where it becomes a depiction of gross violence, yeah. apparently motiveless killing, and violence towards defenseless characters. It goes, I think, into a little bit more of the um, underlying reasons that we do not tend to like violence in games in, in extreme levels, basically, so having looked at the two rating systems, we can extrapolate um, what actually increases violence, what makes something more violent. So we think that it's the level of realism, first of all, because if you are not able to produce a very realistic image, then probably you are limited into how violent that image can actually be, right? And I think it's important because when video games first came around, they were hardly able to show you a whole lot of violent things in the first place. Um, also, it's the intensity or grossness. And I guess um, stick in there as well, glamorization of violence. So just how much blood is actually coming out of someone uh, when you hit them. Um, you know, is it even more than realistic? Like, is it you know, making it even more grandiose than it actually is in real life. The length of violent scenes, uh, absolutely. Um, big difference between like a, you know, one second suggestion and like a full on five minute torture sequence. Yeah. Right. And the motive for killing in game, which we kind of understand from the Peggy writing that, you know, why is the character in game making these kills? Or damage, I suppose. It doesn't have to be a killing dozen violence. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's these four. Level of realism, intensity or grossness, the length of violent scenes, and the motive for killing in-game. So to set the scene and context around, well, when video games first popped up in the early 70s, let's take a look at some other forms of media to get a general sense of the appetite of the general public uh, for digesting some of these adult themes such as violence. So the first medium I want to compare it to uh, for the early 70s is uh, comics, because comics actually have a very deep uh, shared kind of environment with, with games in a lot of ways. Um, so first of all, they're both 
new mediums uh, in relation to a lot of other entertainment media that we have. And also the creators of comics and games, they, they both take a lot of risks with taboo topics, uh, not just violence, but adult themes in general, topics, imagery, what have you. And so we will see throughout the episode that they both had very similar instances of controversy, censorship, stereotyping, and politicization. Following World War II, up until the mid-50s, genres including violent graphic crime, gore, and horror became increasingly popular. Publishers diversified their comics to offer more to readers than only the superhero genre, which the comic books were naturally associated with, mm -hmm. right? So the golden age of uh, comics that was from 1938 to 1956. We'll touch upon why that is 1956. But um, yeah, uh, comics, um, golden age, it started with, you know, uh, Superman, right? And, and all that. But um, after the Second World War, people really quickly got an appetite for all kinds of other genres as well. So sci-fi, war, naturally also crime, detective mysteries, all kinds of comics, right? And so the golden age actually came to a stop because the comic books industry were kind of, you know, forced, pushed to uh, come up with the Comics Code Authority in 1954. And the Comics Code Authority had a list of rules, uh, three of them. I'm just going to give us examples here. Criminals should always be bad and never triumph over good. Authority figures should be respected. And there's a ban on depicting any kind of torture. And there's a lot more in the Comics Code Authority. Interesting for us here is the, the CCA was created by magazine publishers to self-regulate their comics following a very unfavorable public hearing held by the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency. Apparently, this is a massive issue that they were dealing with around this time. At the same time, there was a minor best-selling book that came out by a psychiatrist called Frederick Wortham, and that was released called Seduction of the Innocent. And in this book, he asserted that comic books were a serious cause of juvenile delinquency. The self-censorship caused comic publishers to tone down their themes and create mostly classic superhero comics. And this hurt sales. By the early 70s, however, the CCA was starting to weaken and comic books would start to recover slowly. So by the time video games come around, the CCA is already starting to lose its grasp on controlling comic book content. Another really interesting area to look into is uh, the state of pinball uh, back in the 70s. So interesting for us, it's because... Pinball actually did cause a moral panic back in the day. And it's easy for us to make fun of that because we can't understand how pinball actually uh, caused a moral panic. But we, we have to keep in mind that so pinball wasn't always the pinball that we know it today. Um, you That's know, it, true. it did have uh, connections with the mob. It didn't always have to flip us either. You could have uh, called it a game of chance as well at certain stages in pinball's life, right? And teenagers would actually frequently hang around venues with pinball machines. And it is thought that this has caused a fear amongst elder Americans at the time who were unsure of what the youth was, you know, hanging about at these venues for. If you have listened to our Birth of Arcade episode, you will, you might remember that we mentioned that arcades were first found in places that were kind of construed as seedy, like bars and nightclubs, or places that had pinball and that is why we we said 
places that had pinball because in the public's eye, this was quite a, uh, yeah, not so nice thing, shall we say. The science for amusement only also came from this perception that pinball is a gambling game. Back in 1942, New York's mayor Fiorello LaGuardia saw pinball as a form of gambling that was corrupting America's youth. He and others, such as religious leaders, would describe pinball as a tool of the devil. Other cities soon followed New York, and they also banned pinball machines. In New York, the ban would last until 1976, until a hearing where professional pinball player Roger Sharp demonstrated to New York City's council that it was, in fact, a game of skill and not of chance. Uh, he was hired by the Music and Amusement Association to be their star witness in their pursuit to overturn the ban on pinball in New York. It's a very interesting story, this, actually. There's a movie about it uh, that came out last yeah, year in 2022. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, two years ago in uh, 2022. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I haven't seen it for myself, but having read this about pinball, um, I won't give too much away, but this is this is like some really cool stuff. You guys should take a look at that. So uh, one more uh, medium. Let's take a look at so movies. I think movies is a good one to kind of get a better understanding of how people felt back in the day of what's acceptable to, you know, be seen and witnessed. So when video games were released to the public in 71, and 72, uh, you know, with Computer Space, Pong, and the Magnavox Odyssey, the public's appetite and tolerance for violence in movies was already pretty well established. So I feel like from the research I made, filmmakers were already busy pushing boundaries with, with other adult themes and not particularly with, with violence alone. Um, so some, some movies to give us example that came out during the early 70s. So we got The Godfather, The Exorcist, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Dirty Harry, Taxi Driver. Clearly, back in the early 70s when video games came out, the general audience was certainly not, you know, very guarded or prude or conservative with with what's shown. You yeah, know what I mean? I think they, they, they were more aware of what's acceptable to watch, basically, or to be to be published. Yeah. So that brings me to my point now, though, to, to conclude this uh, setting the scene for the early 70s. So what made gaming different in the 70s? Well, first of all, the unprecedented experience of controlling the actions of a character, which is also something that critics of some video games would use as a way of saying this is not correct. Mm -hmm. um, there's also the available technology of the time's inability to portray realism well enough, right? And lastly, there's a lack of a rating system, whereas movies had one, comics had one, and, well, Pinball didn't have one, but it was it was banned, and then um, the ban got lifted, right? And video games just did not have that right from the get-go. It would be a couple of decades until it has its own. And, yeah, the peace for video games kind of lasted until the first moral panic broke out due to violence in video games. And that was caused by the arcade game Death Race, made by XCD from 1976. And it was the first video games that actually show violence. So you basically use steering wheel and gas pedal to control a car played from a top-down perspective. And you drive over humanoid figures called gremlins to score points. 
When the gremlins have been driven over, they shriek or scream and turn into tombstones. Some of you might recall if you've listened to our arcade episode because we did touch on this game a little bit as well. And yeah, Death Race might be the first game featuring an on-screen kill of a humanoid figure. Interesting first to achieve right there, isn't it actually? Apparently the the shrieking or screaming of the so-called gremlins um, was like a major factoring of the kind of horror people experienced when uh, seeing this game. That's true. Well, I'm not surprised that the National Safety Council at that time, they were outraged. They even used the word outrage by death rays. Gerald Dreesen, a behavioral scientist and manager of the council's research department, say that one of its most insidious and probably unrecognized characteristics is its shift from imaginary visual image of destruction as you have in TV violence, to actual behavioral actions taken by the player. The person is no longer just a spectator, but now an actor in the process of creating violence. So Death Race provoked media criticism. The National Safety Council called it gross. The CBS news program 60 Minutes broadcast an investigation into the psychological impact of video games, And the game was covered on NBC's weekend news show and in the National Enquirer. Dennis Rowe, a safety consultant for the Automobile Club of Southern California, said, We're trying to teach drivers how to take evasive maneuvers on the road, like avoiding pedestrians. And here, this morbid game comes along and encourages people to develop the opposite skill, how to hit people. (laughs) (laughs) Very counterintuitive. I know. I know. (laughs) Oh, bless Dennis. The negative publicity garnered interest for the game as Death Race creator Howell Ivey said the sales did increase slightly. However, the most important aspect was raising the name Exidy to a national recognized level. This resulted in an overnight increase in our distribution network and customers. The game gave us the shot in the arm to get our small company over the difficult early growth phase and be a competitor with the big guys. And after Death Race, it was recognized that many other competing arcade games like Cops and Robbers, Tank 8, and Jet Fighter, all games equally were about violent actions or contained some violent actions, but they saw little complaints. Nolan Bushnell of Atari say that we Atari had an internal rule that we wouldn't allow violence against people. You could blow up a tank or you could blow up a flying saucer, but you couldn't blow up people. We felt that that was not good form and we adhered to that all during my tenure. Yeah, um, Atari had other controversies going on, which we won't go into, but... um I suppose, no, they didn't include violence as such. No. They were dealing with other um, adult-themed controversies, though. That's true, and we did actually touch on that as well a little bit in our previous episode. So the fourth Mm -hmm. game Atari ever made, Gotcha, Mm -hmm. if you remember, it had the uh, joysticks that resembled... uh, They were encased in big pink domes to resemble a chest. Yeah. Right? And um, that was the fourth game Atari ever made, and this story happened earlier than Death Race. However, it didn't cause a major public outrage, um, which is why it's not 
the first major controversy. Apparently, it raised little more than eyebrows at the time. Okay. Yeah. So that's why people say death race is the first controversy because people were actually quite, you know, controversed about it. Yeah, remarkably, few high-level violence schemes have been released between death race in 1976 and the early 80s. During the first generation of video game consoles, the roots of many gaming conventions were still being planted during this time, and the first generation of video game consoles didn't really have the graphics to be too graphic, if that makes sense. I see what you did there. So as we step into the second generation of video game home consoles, or also the golden age of the arcades, basically the early 80s, we do actually start to see more games with stronger elements of violence in them now for all platforms. Um, some stick out here. Uh, so Wizard Video made two licensed games from popular horror movies. Uh, one of them was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and they also made Halloween. Uh, these were both released for the Atari 2600 in 1983. In Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the player controls Leatherface, chasing victims with a chainsaw. When the victim is hit, uh, what appears to be small pools of blood are displayed around their body, but mind you, it's the Atari 2600. It's all still a little bit up to the imagination. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it is most likely blood, though. Uh, in Halloween, the player controls a babysitter rescuing kids while the uh, villain of Halloween, Michael Myers, uh, chases after you. If the player kid gets too close to Myers, they will be decapitated. For both of these games, the technical limitations meant that the games weren't very graphic. But what they were depicting was or should have been very obvious to the player. Both of these games saw store owners refusing to stock them or they were hiding them behind the counter. Yeah, uh, having looked at both of these games, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, I think this one's interesting because you assume the role of the villain, a guy with a chainsaw yep. hunting people. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's not very graphic. So, I mean, the clothes of Leatherface are like in all blue and the chainsaw is just a random mash of pixels also in blue. So, you know, it's, it's hardly graphic. But this one can be worse because of the motive for the killing, which is aimless, it's senseless. You're playing as the villain here, right? Exactly. Yeah, so it's it's quite heavy on, on that kind of, you know, uh, level of violence. On the other hand, Halloween, you do play as someone trying to rescue kids, right? But here, um, the violence is tiny bit more graphic, I would say. Yeah, it's a little bit more obvious for Halloween, but you don't actually assume the role of the villain. Yeah. Um, so that's the difference between these two, um, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, to move on from them to games, more games with horror elements were starting to be developed and becoming more popular around this time as well. But I think that horror games, they only really need to install like a sense of fear or terror for the player. And games can do this without having to portray high levels of violence necessarily. It's more the, the threat of violence, perhaps, or like the, the creepiness factor. Um, so they can rely on things like the atmosphere, the imagery, and the sounds, but it doesn't need to be like graphic violence, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that was also becoming popular at the time. And some examples of these games um, are Go to Hell for the ZX Spectrum from 1985, uh, and also The Evil Dead for Commodore 64. 
released in 1984. Although it might be a little bit much for kids to look at, obviously. Um, you can think of it as like, let's say you're playing Mario and stuff like bricks. It's like floating skulls, mm -hmm. you know, something like that. So like there's this imagery there, but there's, there's like no blood or anything like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It just looks creepy, if that makes sense. So now let's move on to our next uh, real big milestone here. Um, we're going to be talking about a game that it didn't seem to cause a whole lot of controversy. Uh, and it might be um, called rather obscure, perhaps even. Although information can be found about it now, it was kind of hard to find at the time, this game. And um, this game really takes the cake. Like, um, we think of, you know, violence, you know, like modern, I don't know, like Gears of War, Dead Space, you know what I mean? And it's like blood and guts exploding yeah. everywhere, right? Let's put it this way. What you think about what violence is, is what this game is about. Yeah, definitely. This game is probably the, the most violent game that's ever been made, if I'm being honest with you, right? So let's talk about it. So it's Chiller from 1986. And guess who made this game? It was our good old friends who made Death Race, Exidy. So Exidy released this game in uh, 1986 and it severely and overwhelmingly pushed the boundaries of the victim violence and gore. Uh, gore, by the way, is defined as the shedding of blood, especially following violence, okay? Yep. It's a light gun arcade game where the player has to murder or mutilate NPCs, including humans, in the first two levels. And they need to do this as fast as possible. The humans in the first two levels, they are defenseless, dressed in their underwear, restrained in medieval torture devices inside of dungeons, okay? The game stands out as shocking as the graphical ability of, you know, 1986 now, it would allow for, you know, sprites, coloring and animations to give a really graphic detail of injury that previous games could not. So just to give an example of some of the things you can do in this game, um, individual body parts can be targeted and damaged independently of each other. Uh, so you could hit the same limb over and over and more and more pieces of human flesh would come off of it with more and more blood mm -hmm. coming off. So yeah, it's, it's very heavy on gore and blood. Um, it is sometimes cited to be the first game to contain blood, but that isn't true. I think it may very well be the first to feature really heavy animated gore, though. The goal is to complete the level by killing all characters as quickly as possible. It is possible to shoot the NPCs dead, but it's quicker to activate the torture devices that they are hooked up into. Uh, so, for example, one of the people is uh, restrained into a guillotine and there is a box thing you can shoot to, to trigger the mechanism for the guillotine instead. Right. So the, the game is definitely rewarding you for finding the most violent way of completing the game, too. I think Exidy fully tried to make the game as shocking as possible, but the cabinet didn't seem to sell very well at the time with arcades obviously reluctant to put something this violent and gory into their stores. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, again, they don't have a content rating uh, video games, so... Yeah, the responsibility is very much on you as an arcade owner, what you put in your arcade or venue owner 
I mean, still to this day, it would be, I suppose. I mean, if someone comes up to you as an arcade owner and says to you, I don't like that you have this game here, I've got kids with me, and you say, well, this has been rated for, like, the age is five plus. Yeah, I guess there's an argument there to be made, but yeah. Uh, also, somehow this game made it to the NES <laughs> because they managed to uh, get someone to create unlicensed cartridges, which is hilarious uh, somehow because... Nintendo obviously has the chip, so you can only only games licensed by Nintendo can be played on on NES. But they managed to, uh, yeah, get on the NES anyway. Wow. But yeah, if you're gonna take one game away from today's episode, Chiller from 1986, we can get more realistic these days in terms of gore. But I think in terms of you know motive, mindlessness. I don't think you can beat Chiller from 1986. It's one of them games where you could imagine this to be inside of a satire or parody. You know, like this is a game that they play in South Park and it mimics real life of like how stupid and gory some of our games can be. Like it feels like that game should exist there and not in the real world, if that makes sense. It's crazy. Yeah, and I think interestingly enough that you mentioned they created unlicensed cartridges and managed to made it to NES basically it makes me wonder how many games that are just unlicensed or by like unknown publishers that might exist without any supervision basically and they might be a lot more gory a lot more violent but that's the difference isn't it with chiller it is made by a known developer yeah infamous you might say yeah true so let's see what happened after Chiller. Uh, so we're, we're looking at the late 80s now, and games containing graphic, higher levels of violence and gore became more frequent in the 8-bit and 16-bit generation of games now. So we've got games like uh, Barbarian, for example, from 1987, mm-hmm. that featured decapitation, the arcade game Narc, uh, where the players going around shooting or arresting junkies, drug dealers, and terrorists. Um, so you've got a missile launcher or rocket launcher that you can use and that will cause body parts to explode. There's also Splatterhouse, which was a beat-em-up inspired by H.P. Lovecraft novels. That was also released in 1988. Also very heavy on violence. I'd say more more heavy on horror than violence, though. So it yeah. it treads that fine artistic line and all three of the games i've mentioned just now by the way they were positively received by people though so they weren't like grotesque like chiller no these were quite well liked games actually as we start to enter the 90s it was becoming evident that many games were highly violent now and it was becoming obvious where the trend was going to and games have now had a couple of decades to really find their footing see what works create some genres side-scrolling, horizontal-scrolling, shoot-em-up, beat-em-up, etc., etc. But there were some smart decisions made that helped them be generally tolerated. So enemies, for example, they would often be monsters, zombies, or aliens. If it was humans involved, there tended to be somewhat less of a gory imagery or animation taking place. Dismemberment of body parts was a frequently used animation technique in games. I can kind of see why. So if you have like a sprite of like a monster and, you know, you you shoot the monster, you blow it up like an easy way to animate is to just, you know, break the image into individual parts and have them rotate away from each other. Right. So like 
it sounds really gory this moment, but in fact it's it's just an easy animation tool to show you've destroyed an enemy. It doesn't need to be gory or violent, but yeah, it is dismemberment if you want to be technical about it, right? And as games became generally faster, you know, they were high resolution, more colors, the frames per second are going up, you can show more effects on screen, the general level of violence, the intensity and the length of it is increasing now as well, but not necessarily the gore. So examples of these are Beast Busters and SAR, Search and Rescue, arcade games from the early 90s. So um, Beast Buster, for example, that was a uh, light grid game. And, uh, you know, within a second or two, you could have four or five enemies pop up in the background, one big one in the foreground. You shoot the one in the foreground, get dismembered, and then body parts fly everywhere. At the same time, someone's shooting you and you get like a screen shatter effect of the whole screen. So just in general, like, it's, it's just more intense. It's not more graphic. It's not more violent. It's just more intense. It's quicker. It's faster. So now that we reached the early 90s, yeah, we're finally here at the probably the biggest turning point for video games. So mm-hmm. two games were released in 1992 that would set up the ESRB and the first video game content rating system in the world. These two games would later be cited as triggering these congressional hearings to take place. So the first one, Mortal Kombat, especially the fatality moves in Mortal Kombat, which this episode is named after. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know what a fatality is, if you lower your opponent's health to zero, they do like a um, dizzying effect. You know, they're just standing around kind of like... Ugh. They're basically unable to make moves anymore, yeah. basically, your opponent. Yeah, and if you know your secret button combination for the character you're playing as, you can trigger a fatality move, which would be a very gory killing animation. And that could include dismemberment, decapitation, impalement, all kinds of things, really. Uh, Don't want to be too graphic, but they do a lot of different things with Mortal Kombat. They got quite creative with the fatality moves, let's say, right? But I would still argue, Chiller from six years previous is way worse than Mortal Kombat. Let me tell you. I would say so too. Yeah, definitely. The other game, funnily, that got cited as triggering these congressional hearings was Night Trap. And if you never heard of Night Trap, Night Trap was a interactive movie game. It had full motion video, FMV, that was released for the Sega CD. And you are basically, uh, I guess, part of like a SWAT team uh, with cameras set up in a house and there's some girls having a sleep over there mm-hmm. and there's uh, vampires who just look like they don't look like vampires so they just look like people dressed in complete black camo really yeah. but they are vampires but by playing the game in a certain way uh, you can trigger one of the girls to get kidnapped and the three vampires basically just walking her off screen there was going to be some screaming involved and they have this machine that sucks blood out of her neck, but um, you, you you don't really see anything. It looks very... Uh, you can only make fun of it these days, really, when you see it, to think that people got upset by that kind of thing, because, um, yeah, I'm sorry, but, like, nah. What <laughs> <laughs> with The Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 20 years earlier, but then this this game where, like, three guys in, like, black clothes Black just suit, yeah. drag away like a woman like yeah that's that's controversial now i see i see so yeah mortal kombat and night trap this led to a senate hearing to take place the following year 
in December 7th, 1993, and another one in March 5th, 1994. So, Doom would also be added to the list of games given as examples of ultra-violent games. So, Doom wasn't part of the game that was part of the Senate hearing in 1993, but was added to the 1994 Senate hearing. Charles Everett Coop, the Surgeon General of the U.S., so this role makes one of the leading spokesperson on matters of public health in the United States. He believed that video games may be affecting the health and well-being of kids, which was the perceived target audience. Just a few hours before the first hearing started, the video game industry already made a joint announcement that they would work together to self-regulate game content and create a rating system. During the hearings, the industry was threatened with a bill that would be enforced if the industry fails to regulate. The bill would then have made the government the ultimate arbiter of what games should or shouldn't be allowed to contain. Yeah, this might remind you of Comics Code Authority, yeah? Yep. Forcing self-regulation with the threat of otherwise being handed to you by the government, what you can and can't do, yeah? Yeah, do it or we do it for you yeah, kind of deal. absolutely. But yeah, interesting events out of the hearing were that the government and the industry disagreed about the demographics or the age of people who play games. Yeah, I think from the government side, they really tried to push this statistic that the majority of players were between the age of 7 and 12. How is that possible? I mean, that's not even that long ago when video games were actually perceived to be something that's adults only. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, isn't isn't it such a irony? Like yeah. how how did how did we get here then in the first place if we're making games for children, yeah? I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite funny. It, I find it very funny. It's it's almost accusatory, isn't it? Like mm -hmm. why did you make these games for kids? It's a loaded question, isn't it? Hey, 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 I didn't make them for kids. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, on the back of the joint announcement, at first Sega pushed for their own internal rating system to be used collaboratively. But this was rejected prominently by rival Nintendo. I'm not surprised there. Yeah, of course not. Yeah, like, no, of course not, though. Imagine if Marvel said to DC, like, listen, like, why don't you just jump on board with our way of rating comics? You yeah. know, <laughs> like, it's not going to happen. You're, you're letting another company dictate what you can and can't do, right? Of course, they're not going to come to an agreement there. No, of course. So game developers and publishers, including Acclaim, EA, along with Nintendo and Sega, formed a political trade group called ESA, Entertainment Software Association, to serve as an advocacy group for the industry, which then actually led to the creation of ESRB, Entertainment Software Ratings Board. So the creation of ESA and ESRB appeared to have benefited video games, at least to us as the general involvement and continued development of adult themes, including violence, doesn't seem to have been impacted that much. No. Perhaps past decision of the CCA contributed to a better rating system for their own industry. Yeah, I think the CCA probably made some mistakes by nailing down what comic books cannot do. Mm -hmm. So like you cannot do these certain specific things. Whereas with video games, they said, right, if it's got this amount of adult themes in it, then this is the minimum age that you can sell this product to. Yeah. So you're not actually 
changing the content or forcing certain contents. You're just saying, if it has this, um, we cannot sell it to people younger than this. Yeah, it's not a complete ban, more like regulated, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Lastly, let's take a look at some key games and events uh, involving violence in video games for the remainder of the 20th century and maybe how the third dimension impacted violence and some more modern examples. Uh, in 1997, the American attorney Jack Thompson, on behalf of parents of three children that were killed in the Heath High School shooting that occurred in the same year, files the first of a large number of lawsuits, alleging that the video game industry was negligent distributing games to minors. The assailant, Michael Adam Carneal, was 14 at the time, and investigations found that he frequently played games including Doom, Quake, Castle Wolfenstein, Redneck Rampage, Nightmare Creatures, Mech Warrior, and Resident Evil. The case was thrown out years later, and several more lawsuits attempting to tie video game violence to causing real violence from youth would follow. But for the sake of time, we will leave this topic for a future episode, which I'm really looking forward to do. So before we wrap up, I'm just going to talk about a few more games uh, from the late 90s, early 2000s, and how we progressed into the more modern day of 3D gaming. So Resident Evil popularizes the survival horror genre with its first game, releasing in 1996. Um, another majorly outrageous game, uh, for me the second most after Chiller, is the first Postal game, which was released in 1997. That's an isometric top-down shooter, but that is a polite way of calling the game. It's probably more practical to call it a mass murder game. <laughs> I'm laughing in irony, to be honest with you, because it is such a polite way to say it. Top-down shooter. Yeah. So the plot is minimal, but the plot is that you control a character only known as the Postal Dude. And it's alluded throughout the story that he's suffering from mental delusions and he's mass-murdering innocent civilians, law enforcement, in the last level, even kids in an elementary school. The game was very controversial, to say the least, and was banned in more than 10 countries. The remaining three Postal games which were all equally as controversial, were turned into first-person shooters. Also released in 1997 is Carmageddon. The reason I wanted to mention Carmageddon is, uh, I think, in terms of violence, like, uh, nothing that hasn't been done before, but I feel like we're going to come full circle here with Carmageddon. So one of the gameplay modes is basically very similar to Death Race, almost a revival of the concept, where you just have to hit as many pedestrians as possible. And not surprising, the game was actually inspired by the 1975 movie Death Race 2000. And at the time when Exidy released their game, the arcade game, uh, Death Race, uh, it was a common rumor that like the game was based off of the movie Death Race 2000, which came out just a year before the arcade game. But they always denied that it had nothing to do with the movie. It wasn't a tie-in at all. And yeah, this game was also banned in several countries, Carmageddon was. So uh, yeah, of course, lastly, uh, GTA was released in 1998 and controversy existed surrounding this game, but they seem a little bit minor in comparison to the other games that contained violence already. And also when you compare it later to the amount of controversy that GTA 3 would get just three years later, 
now their first 3D GTA game. Interesting to note as well is that GTA 3 was slated to be released very shortly after 9-11. And Rockstar made some quick last-minute changes to the game because the game is set in Liberty City, which is the fictional representation of New York. So, Player One, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have any pets, now might be a good time for a cuddle. Yeah, after all of that gore and violence we talk about, emotional support definitely is needed, isn't it, right now? So, as usual, new episodes of Gaming History Club are released every second Wednesday, so make sure you subscribe and follow us on our social media. Say hi to us by visiting our website, gaminghistory.club, and let us know if there are any topics you'd like to hear, or just share your favorite video game stories with us. Come back in a couple weeks when Gaming History Club shakes off the gore and gets groovy instead. See ya.